there may be um, some more bad news on the way. It won't last forever, but you've got to be prepared to layer in, see a little bit more weakness in the market, but you ultimately will get that very sharp snapback. And in credit in particular, the snapbacks come very, very quickly. And so not being too cute on trying to time it, not just follow it, pick your points and have conviction around those points. They focus on the fundamentals that you do not need to compromise on risk during periods like this. If you can take a flexible approach, give a manager a mandate, allow them to go and pick out different pieces of the market, all within the context of an overarching strategy, I'd say, you know, it would be difficult to go too far wrong if you are in the luxurious position of having cash and uh, being able to deploy it right now. That was Martin Horn, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode six of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is particularly important right now because we are moving away from our every other week cadence and instead we'll be publishing episodes as soon as they are ready. We know that markets are moving quickly right now and we wanna make sure we have our team's latest insights available for you as quickly as we can. So on today's show, I spoke with Martin Horn, head of global public fixed income and head of global high yield here at Bearings. In this conversation, we discussed how the recent dramatic price action we've seen in credit markets compares to what we've seen in past crises, and if we can draw any conclusions from that. What sectors are better or worse positioned during this period? What Martin and team are watching to help them gauge the length and depth of this crisis? where the best relative value opportunities are appearing, and finally, what strategies Martin and team are implementing to navigate the weeks and months ahead. With that, here is my conversation with Martin Horn. All right, Martin Horn, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. So Martin, we've all spent years talking about when this credit cycle would end, when this economic cycle might end. Um, And I'm not sure anyone would have predicted that it would be a global pandemic that would bring markets and the economy to an extent crashing down. But that's, I guess, where we find ourselves. So suddenly we find ourselves living through unprecedented times, learning new ways to work, to live, and of course, trying to make some sense of what this all means for markets. So Maybe let's start there um, with your broad mandate as head of global fixed income and global high yield at bearings. Can you help us to put some of the movements that we've seen in credit markets these past few weeks in some kind of context relative to other periods of extreme volatility that we've seen throughout history? Yeah, sure. The comparisons with the Lehman's crisis are not unfounded in terms of the trajectory and how rapidly certainly asset pricing moved in March in particular of this year. Um, We're not quite there yet. Uh, When you look at the bonds and the loan market, depending on whether you're in double Bs or single Bs, you're going to see asset pricing typically hovering in either the low 80s through to the the 70s. 
Um, for context on that, Lehman's um, bottomed out in both the loan and the bond market in the mid-60s. Uh, and then we saw a very rapid recovery um, in the following months. Um, we're expecting a similar sort of trajectory, a new turn. I think the difference today is that when you look at how the financial markets are generally behaving and the equity markets is always the bellwether for financial market sentiment. Um, people are trying to quantify uh, this event and it's a very, very difficult thing to do. You, you mentioned in your introduction, unprecedented. That's, that's absolutely correct. And one of the things that you need to do to quantify the event is to put some sort of timeline around it. And whilst we are getting more points of reference, such as how quickly the Chinese got a hold of the, um, the health crisis, what's happened in South Korea, um, what's happening in Italy. Um, it's still uncertain, in, in particular developed market context, how long the industrial market shutdown is going to occur, how long consumer behavior is going to be fundamentally altered. And that's really what's developed into the asset sell-off that you've seen. It has nothing to do with underlying credits, and that's very similar to the Lehman's crisis. And in some ways, the bigger, more liquid names get moved more um, actively just because they are the names that um, there is a bid and offer and, and active two-way flows on a regular basis. So um, it's indiscriminate in terms of the underlying names. Um, there's some differentiation between high quality and low quality, I would say, but, but all boats are, are basically falling with the uh, receding tide to a certain degree. And um, that should result in a market where when we can see uh, the other side of this event, there will be an opportunity. It's just how do we quantify the beginning and the end and the depth of what the economic fallout is going to be. So you mentioned the Lehman crisis. You know, I've heard others compare what we're going through right now to the kind of post 9-11 period. Uh, we've obviously seen a number of other periods of volatility since the financial crisis, including the commodity crisis of 15-16, the European sovereign debt crisis, et cetera. What have you seen um, during some of these periods where credit spreads have blown out, prices have been hit? What have you seen in terms of uh, the kind of bounce back from those? What's that kind of generally looked like for some of the past crises that we've seen? Yeah, for context, I don't think it's too helpful to go too far back because we've got to remember that the markets have fundamentally changed in profile. So uh, for me, when people start talking about the Russian crisis, the telco bubble, the 9-11, that's too far back to really be a, a comparison to the profile of investors and, and products that we have in the high-yield market today. I think Lehman's onwards is generally a, a reasonable uh, proxy and a, a reasonable parameter from, from which to make your judgments. I'll say this, that in terms of the drawdown or how far the markets dropped relative to each other, if you look at credit markets, um, they generally drop between a third and two thirds of the level of the equity market. So the, the, the push down is, is less acute. Um, that's been consistent uh, since Lehman's. 
It was the same in the sovereign debt crisis. It was the same in the commodity cycle. It was the same in Q4 18. So um, as, as your first stereotype, if you like, credit markets get pushed down less. And certainly in the early part of March, we have seen exactly that, um, that the equity markets are the markets that have been hit the most. And they are displaying the largest swings of positive days followed by negative days. Um, and the, the debt markets, while, whilst directionally the same, have not been hit as hard. Uh, the other stereotype is, uh, as you uh, inquired about, the recovery of these markets. And typically, what you saw through all of the periods that I mentioned, um, that the debt markets recovered two or three times as quickly as the equity markets. You've got to remember that debt market investment is, is I would say, a far less subjective investment because particularly when you're dealing with relatively short-term debt, when companies' earnings recover, the market very quickly rationalizes that that business will survive. It has a cash flow generation to service its debt. It will be able to refinance itself. And that's a pretty straightforward piece of analytics for the market to get comfortable with. Far more difficult, and I think it will be the case in the markets that we're facing today, is the more, what I'd say, cerebral and subjective um, judgment on what is the PE ratio of this company valued today, mm -hmm. which is your classic equity market investment. Because I think one of the things we are going to see as a result of this event is a much softer economic landscape afterwards. Um, it feels reasonable to assume that you're going to be faced with at least a mild recession in a number of jurisdictions. And as a result of that, future earnings profiles of businesses um, are going to be more subjective. So I would expect you to see the same. I would expect the debt markets to recover to what I'd say is a more rational level of spread context and the equity markets to take longer to get themselves to a position where everyone feels comfortable that they are appropriately pricing in whatever the new landscape uh, looks like. And just because I didn't mention it in your previous question, Spreads in high yields are anywhere between 1,000 and 1,300 over as we speak. That is entirely irrational from a, a longer-dated perspective. You know, we have completely overblown the correction that the market should have undertaken. But that, again, is a stereotype for our markets. Markets are always illogical on the downside. They're pretty much always illogical on the upside as well. And it's just understanding the context of what's reasonable and unreasonable in this environment. That's going to be the art to investors when they consider putting long-term dollars to work. You mentioned earnings and how some of these companies may be impacted uh, from this crisis. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the different sectors and, in, you know, I assume that the, that the way companies are going to be impacted is not going to be uniform across the board. So can you maybe talk a little bit about, as you and the team are analyzing the underlying businesses here, which businesses look better or worse positioned uh, coming out of this crisis? Uh, yeah, sure. I think you can layer businesses into different categories. I think there's the businesses that are trading purely on technicals, because there's every reason to believe that in most cases they will be largely unaffected by what's going on. 
And in some cases, um, I think food businesses are an easy to grasp example of this. Some businesses may even do better out of this environment. So if you're classically a food manufacturer right now, um, when you see consumer behavior across various developed markets, we are shopping like it is Christmas twice over. Right. And, and so there's going to be businesses that are still trading in the low 80s that actually are going to get an earnings bump out of this. And you can speculate around telco and cable. Some of the paper and packaging businesses are in the same camp. I'd say that's, that's your first category. And those businesses are, you know, just to use a piece of financial market jargon, likely to exhibit the most convexity when the markets recover. In other words, they're, if they're trading at 80 pence in the pound, you can imagine they'll pretty quickly trade up to par or above if it's a bond. Um, because, um, frankly, the market knows that there's nothing wrong with those businesses. And if anything, they're in as good or better shape than they were. Hmm. Um, and then I'd say that there's the businesses which what I think is short-term disruption. They may require liquidity support to get them over this hump. But essentially, they were good businesses going into this event, and there'll be good businesses on the other side. And you can imagine there's a number of travel concerns that fit that bill. And there's the likes of the cinema businesses where content has all been backed up. So when we are allowed out of our homes, you can imagine Hollywood is going to blitz the, mm-hmm. uh, the cinema chains with a lot of product that people may well want to see because they'll be desperate to get out of their houses. You can look at sporting franchises like F1 Racing, where you're getting a number of races backed up and cancelled, but ultimately it will reopen. It will garner the popularity. It may even get a bump on the other side because people will be so desperate for mm. the product again. So those are the, that's the second category I would say to you. Um, uh, again, they, they may not recover quite as quickly, but I think as soon as people can rationalize the beginning and the end, they can quantify the cash flow consequences of this event for those businesses, they will look very, very in investable propositions. And then I think you've got the more structurally challenged businesses, um, and I'm talking about the kind of heavy cyclicals, the obvious ones, like retail energy, some of the um, more commodity-orientated uh, chems businesses and construction businesses, auto businesses. And there you're going to have to take a more longer-dated view because it, it isn't just this event that's going to impact those businesses. Um, it's actually the landscape that they'll be trading afterwards and the impact of that landscape on their ongoing operations. Um, again, there will be a price point where they are very investable businesses. Um, but I think that requires a lot more analytics put behind that investment decision. I think as we sit here today, you don't really have to reach for that risk to get really excessive returns. So I can imagine that investors will come at these businesses in phases as they get more confident on the landscape and as they get more confident about what their relative value proposition and judgment should be. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense that depending on the industry or sector that a business is in, that this crisis will impact them differently. Let me just ask you, as you look at the way the market's behaving and bonds are actually trading, are you seeing the market discriminate in this way? Or is it sort of a shoot first, ask questions later type of scenario? No, there's some of that. There's, you know, everything's fallen, and, and that's the indiscriminate part. And everything's fallen in an excessive manner. 
we've definitely lower rated distressed companies that were frankly in trouble before this event occurred. They are trading where you'd expect them to be trading at the lower end of the range of where asset profiles are today. And the really, really top quality companies that are difficult to use the phrase undoubted, but there are some out there. Really, there is no chance of impairment from where you would enter in the capital stack. Um, they, they have experienced excessive push down in asset pricing, but not nearly as acute. So there is some discrimination in the marketplace. I think just looking at asset pricing and making a judgment of return is not the way to think about these markets, though, because a lot of it's going to depend on how quickly the recovery will be. And whilst I think the push down on these individual assets all came at once and all in one particular month, I'm not sure the recovery, if the market is rational, and there's, there's a big if around that, but the recovery may well come in stages because I think it won't just be a matter of we're through the healthcare disruption and and now we're back to norm. Um, I think actually once we're through this healthcare disruption, you can think about some of the government action, some of the central bank action. Someone's got to pay for all of that. Mm-hmm. There will be unemployment as a result of some of the disruption caused to industry. And so we're not going to be in the near full employment situation we were in in many jurisdictions, including the sort of UK and Scandinavia, Germany and the US. So there, there's definitely going to be some fallout. And so I, I would say to investors, don't just look at the asset price and assume that's the reflection of your near-term returns. It may come in phases and, and you may want to adjust your, your appetite for different forms of assets um, as you see confidence growing. Okay. So you're kind of painting a picture of almost like a multi-speed recovery where it's not like the all clear alarm sounds and, and it's back to normal. So maybe different sectors come back online at, at different times uh, and the like. But it, you know, I, I guess this is kind of an impossible question to answer because nobody really knows how long this event is going to take to play out. But can you give us a little bit of insight into how you and your team are trying to get your arms around that. So are there indicators that you're looking at? Are there things that you're tracking to help you gauge, you know, the length and the depth of this crisis? Yeah, I think, look, uh, in the near term, everything's focused on liquidity. So you've got to assume in a lot of industries, everything just stops. And we've never really had, even in the Lehman's crisis, businesses continue to operate to a certain extent. And the markets did not have this kind of stop-go light situation that we find ourselves in today. So then we are doing and have been doing analysis on every single of our portfolio companies where we think there's going to be cessation of business activities. You look at the cost base, you look at how deep you think the the cash hole could go, um, you look at what the sponsor is likely to do jurisdictionally what's happening and there's new government legislation coming out all of the time in terms of funding employee wages Um, and you think about the commercial reality behind of these markets that not all landlords for example are going to be completely unreasonable and demand their rent a lot of them are going to want to have tenants after this event is over and you can imagine that everyone is going to be a bit more commercial about providing forgiveness for short-term 
liabilities to get us over this hump. And I think that's the sort of commercial approach that you need to make. In terms of judging the beginning and the end, I think that's going to be very much led by the cessation of normal consumer and industry uh, behavior. And that, that really is an indefinable event. We know that from all of the commentary that we get, and we get an awful lot of it, um, we're unlikely to be talking about people locked away this time next year. So there, there's your long-dated measurement rule. Mm-hmm. But um, whether it's one, two, three months, six months, whether there's two spikes to this with a, a gap in the summer, mm-hmm. I think that's unproven. And without sort of antiviral treatment being readily available, I don't think you can draw too many definitive lines in the sand. But what I would say to you is that the way that we believe investors will behave and stakeholders will behave is that good quality companies going into this uh, this event that were good quality beforehand are likely to be good quality afterwards. And we think investors act rationally and people will be supportive of providing um, that bridge over what is a relatively short-term but fairly dramatic event. I think where you can expect to see more vanilla restructurings with debt swap for equity is in the companies that were perceived to be high risk going into this. And this event may bring forward a number of restructuring activities that were likely to occur over a more protracted period. Um, And we're doing analysis around all of this and trying to position ourselves as well as we can and make sure that we have appropriate levels of liquidity, but make sure also that the validity of our portfolios is diverse enough and we've got the right balance between really high quality assets and assets that are the highest yielding assets. And, and that's the challenge that I think all asset managers will be faced within this marketplace. As you look across that credit market landscape, you look you know, particularly across the below investment grade part of the market or the high yield part of the market, and you start to think about, okay, are there areas where we can be opportunistic here? Right. Um, I know, as you mentioned, liquidity is a is a top uh, focus at the moment. But obviously, the longer this plays out, I would imagine that you know, with prices having been marked down across the board, there could be some very interesting long term value um, opportunities. So, uh, if it's not too early to talk through that, I'd be interested as to where you are starting to see those types of value uh, opportunities emerge and maybe where you expect to see them uh, continue to reveal themselves in the, in the months ahead. Yeah, I really think it depends on the investor's outlook and how long that they're willing to sort of leave their money invested. Um, you said it, if it's long term, I think there will be no better market right now than a distressed debt opportunity, mainly because everything is good value and all asset classes are good value. And um, you don't necessarily have to reach for the same risk profile as a distressed debt strategist that you did have to even six months ago. There are plenty of dislocation trades and liquidity support facilities. And, you know, whilst the distressed debt strategy, if it were marketed to you before Christmas, would have been marketed somewhere between the 10 and 15 percent range. Today, I'd suggest that that's more like 20 to 25, and there may be upside from that, depending on the sort of scale of the opportunity set and how it reveals itself and who can afford to fund it. If you can lock your money away 
I think distressed debt is exactly the place to go. I think there will be a proliferation of opportunity sets. If you really have a short-term perspective, I'd end up in the higher quality, low 80s, but credit um, unquestioned high-yield market, either the loans or bonds, because they're both trading at about the same level. When bonds and loans trade at the same level, you have a slight bias for loans on occasions because they're fully asset secured. But frankly, I would be in a more flexible mandate where I could do either because there's great opportunities in both the bonds and the loan market. And for me, given the quality of the underlying names you can select from, it's difficult to be too definitive about which one is better. Um, I would have a mixture of both. And then really on your wish list, you shouldn't forget about things like the CLO market where it's much less liquid. Um, you are going to have to make a decision to be invested in that and stick with it. But again, less liquid asset classes during the market conditions we have seen, uh, we tend to get beaten up the most. And depending on, you know, if your ratings constrained investor and you have to stick to higher rated products, um, being in the structured credit CLO market at the top end of the capital stack is a very, very attractive place to be. But if you're more adventurous and you can be, you know, dare I say it, uh, double Bs or even uh, into some of the equity tranches that may or may not trade over the coming months, that could be a really exciting IRR profile. Again, comfortably double digit at those levels, but you're going to have to uh, hang on, and, and because we're not through this crisis just yet, it may be a bit bumpy on the way through. So mm-hmm. lots and lots of opportunities. The world is your oyster right now. You've just got to really define what you're trying to achieve, how long you're trying to achieve it over, and ultimately what this asset profile is going to do against all the other asset profiles that sit in your portfolios. Martin, as we finish up here, I just wanted to you know, kind of go back for a moment to look at some of these um, lessons learned, I guess, from past crises. I mean, this one is is obviously different, uh, but we've we've touched on 9/11, the financial crisis, European sovereign debt. You've invested through all of these, and you know, as we finish up here, I'm just curious: Are there any particular lessons that you've learned through those periods that you think might be helpful today? Uh, and I guess anything that you'd leave people with here today as they look to navigate this crisis themselves? Yeah, I think, look, remember that all crises have a beginning and the end. And, and in that way, even the most unpredictable events do become somewhat predictable in, in how they will play out. I think the first one is markets are very, very difficult to time. Almost no one does it. And if they do, they do it by accident, even if they might not tell you that. So just get a price point that works for you on a, on a two-year basis. And if you've got the capital, deploy it in an asset class you believe in. I, I believe that most asset classes in the world offer you uh, a di- very, very handsome level of value. But there will be different recovery rates or there could be uh, different timing in those recovery rates. So don't just get seduced by absolute asset pricing. Think more carefully about the way that you take on these markets and understand if you start layering in here, we may be in for, and I, my personal opinion is, as we sit here on the phone today, there may be um, some more bad news on the way. It won't last forever, but you've got to be prepared to layer in 
see a little bit more weakness in the market and layer in again and see a bit more weakness in the market and layer in again. But you ultimately will get that very sharp snapback. And in credit in particular, the snapbacks come very, very quickly. And so not being too cute on trying to time it, not just follow it, pick your points and have conviction around those points. They focus on the fundamentals that you do do not need to compromise on risk during periods like this. You can stay really high quality and get um, returns that you'll be talking about for a few years. Change the profile of your asset base and your instructions to your managers should change as your confidence in the market changes over time. Um, and give yourself as much flexibility to pick off different points when everything represents good value saying one thing is better than the other is probably not true in most occasions. If you can take a flexible approach, give a manager a mandate, allow them to go and pick out different pieces of the market, all within the context of an overarching strategy, I'd say, you know, it would be difficult to go too far wrong if you are in the luxurious position of having cash and uh, being able to deploy it right now. Yeah, well, that's great advice, and, and I think a, a great message to end on, Martin. So thank you for joining us. Um, I know it's a busy time. I know it's difficult to step away even for a few minutes from markets, given things are moving so fast. But I appreciate your insights and your perspectives, and I appreciate you joining us from London this morning, and I hope you and your family stay safe during this unprecedented period. So thanks again, Martin. Yeah, thanks. And same to you and your family. Um, stay well, everyone. All right. Talk soon. Thanks again for listening to episode six of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.